it's always a, a wonderful privilege to share with you. And um, Nick, I don't know if you could put the, uh, is it Nick there? Oh, Chris. Chris is, looks like he's stepping in the gap. Thank you, Chris. Um, what I want to speak to you about this morning is moving from a place of fear to a place of faith. And uh, on Friday night, um, Ant and I, well, we weren't planning to go to the movies. We were planning to actually have a quiet night at home. And then Jesse and his friends wanted to go to the movies and they needed a lift. So we had the option of driving all the way to Hemel and going back again or watching a movie ourselves. So we decided to say, okay, what's on? And we went to see Hacksaw Ridge. Have you, any of you seen that? Really, really good movie. So I just want to show a little clip. Um, of course, have you got the clip ready? Uh, I'm going to just show you a little clip of the trailer. Um, it is a, a age 15, so there is a couple of scenes that are a little bit gory, but I hope it's okay for you. Okay. Thanks, Chris. can highly recommend that movie. It's, um, if you can close your eyes for a couple of the scenes, it is really, really riveting. And uh, it's an extraordinary true story of um, a man called Desmond Doss who fought in Okinawa, which was one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. 
And he single-handedly saved 75 men off that battlefield. Um, the rest of the, um, uh, the, the troop had been moved down back to base camp and he was left there and he dragged all 75 men off that ridge um, with his own two hands. Um, he was the only man in the um, Second World War, American soldier, who went into full combat without a rifle. He refused to carry a rifle or to fire a, a single shot, and he worked as a medic. Um, and he evacuated all those soldiers while still being hit by a grenade and by snipers himself. And he was the only ever conscientious objector to earn the Congressional Medal of Honor. So an amazing story of, of courage, and I really recommend you to see that. But one of the things that is so powerful when you watch that movie, the, the Battle of Okanikwa was brutal. Um, and the film doesn't hide the sheer terror that was on the faces of those men as they approach the top of that ridge and they face this surely they know they're either going to be killed or they're going to um, face certain carnage. It is just sheer terror. And yet they force themselves to advance over that ridge into that battlefield. And one of the things that you see when you watch a film like that is as each of them summon their courage, as each of them rally to the in, within themselves against this incredible fear, you see that it affects the men alongside them. And together they have this grouping together and saying, we can do this because of the, the kind of energy and resolve and the resilience in each individual soldier. And I want to say that fear is something that everyone faces at some point. And for some people, it can become almost a daily struggle to overcome fear. And I believe that as each of us in the church, as we overcome our struggles with fear, it gives encouragement and strength to our brothers and sisters. Because God wants us as his children to move from a place of fear to a place of faith. And uh, when you read the scriptures, they abound with stories of courageous men and women. In fact, I don't actually think there's a biblical character in the Bible who does not encounter a spirit of fear. You can go from Adam and Eve all the way to Noah, from Abraham to Sarah, Abraham and Sarah to Joseph and Moses, from King David to Esther, and all the prophets from um, Elijah to Nehemiah. You think about their stories. They all came face to face with things that would have terrified them, that would have caused them to face their fears. We are told that even the disciples, after they lived and walked with Jesus, after his execution, they were found in the upper room trembling afraid of what was going to happen. And we only have to think of all the persecutions that Paul and the other apostles and followers of Christ suffered, what fear they must have had to overcome when they were flogged or thrown to the lions. We think of church history and the courage um, of those that stood true to the gospel of Jesus, like someone like Martin Luther, who took on the whole might of the Catholic Church of his day. Um, who has not known fear? And these believers did. And yet we see that in each of their stories, there is an amazing resilience and defiance and a certainty that came from their knowing their God. 
And I believe that we too are to spur one another on with perseverance for the race marked out for each of us. Even if at times it feels like you're on the edge of Hacksaw Ridge in your life. We can say like Paul, we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back. So I want to, uh, Chris, if you can put up um, this Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. I'm sure you know this passage well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's all those people that I've been speaking about, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Today, I want to explore some biblical keys to overcoming the paralysis of fear. And I want to do that by looking at the life of Gideon so that we can live triumphant lives through our faith in Jesus, the greatest overcomer of all. So let's have a look at this man called Gideon. And uh, if you can put up the next slide, uh, we start off finding about his story in Judges 6, verse 1 to 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined all the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Sometimes we can experience fear in our lives because of the challenges that might exist on an international or a national scale. The Israelites were experiencing the harassment and the oppression of the Midianites who ravaged their lands and stole their livestock. They strategically and intentionally invaded Israel's land with the, with the purpose of driving them out of their own territory. And even for us today, our lives are not in an insulated bubble. The shakings in the political, economic, and social spheres affect all of our lives. Um, whether we're conscious of them or not, they do an impact on us. And one has only to think of the recent financial crisis to see how it affected people's job security or the uncertainty of the outworking of Brexit in people's decisions of where they live, uh, where they travel, and where they work. 
or the raging and random attacks of ISIS that have devastated cities and families going about their daily lives. International and national concerns impact our daily lives. And the effect of the invasion of the Midianites and the Amalekites on the people of Israel showed itself in two different ways. The first thing was that the Israelites began to retreat into caves and mountain hideouts for safety. Their normal daily life was completely hemmed in and disrupted to the point of them just fighting for survival. And we can see this in our modern day plight of the Syrian families who've fled a war-torn country in search of refuge. And in the West, we've had many years of living without war in our backyard, and we can almost look at the displacement of whole nations from a critical distance, from a safe distance, um, watching it all happening. But as Christians, we are called to compassion and to action, to respond to the, the sufferings of others and to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. But when the spirit of oppression and fear comes over whole nations through the threats of war and instability, it comes to intimidate. That's its intention. It comes to intimidate and to cause people to shrink back, to curtail their plans and their expectations. Though we don't put our head in the sand and pretend these things don't affect us, but as Christians, we are called to be a beacon of hope in tumultuous times. We are called to say that there is hope, that there is a way forward to those who are retreating in fear. We are called to remind each other that we have a God who's the God of the impossible. We have a God who's the God of history, who stands firm through all the fluxes and movements of what, what happens through time. But I wanna challenge us this morning, and I wanna ask us, and I ask myself, have you begun to shrink back? Have you begun to retreat into a cave from the things that you know that God has promised over your life because of the climate in our nation or internationally or even in your workplace? Because I want to exhort you this morning that what we have to start off by doing is recognizing the areas in my life and in your life where we are no longer living from a place of confident faith, but instead we've shrunk back and retreated into a cave. I don't know what area that could be for you. It could be in your work, it could be in your relationships, or in the sense of what God has for you in your future. You see, intimidation always comes to press us just to be in survival mode. It stops us from dreaming. It causes us to feel powerless and without authority. But God says something different. And the second thing we see that happens to the Israelites when they are under this attack from the Midianites is that they begin to cry to the Lord for help. The devil always sends intimidation to drive us away from God and from trusting in him. But the truth is that when people undergo great turmoil and suffering, they begin to call out to God. I always love the C.S. Lewis quote that says, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deafened world. And we know that God does not cause suffering. But what the devil intends for harm God, in his sovereignty, turns for his good purposes. 
I recently met a young woman who had tragically lost a set of triplets. She came to our, t our toddler's group, and she told me that she's never believed in God, but that she's had a des growing desire to know him and to raise her other little ones to know him. And that's come out of this deep grief in her life. David understood this. King David understood this feeling of absolute facing your terror, facing your pain, but then calling out to God. And of course, if you can put up the next slide, in Psalm 70, it says, David says, Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I'm poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. I suppose it's a thing of not allowing the things that cause us panic and anxiety to cripple us, but to allow them to turn them into cries to the Lord. It may not be a long prayer that you pray. It may just be the words, Lord, help me. Because God hears every cry for help, and he responds as a good father to his children and as the powerful Lord of all creation. Now, in the next slide, we see what happens to the story with the Midianites. So, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The way that God answers the Israelites cries for help is that he sends them a prophet as his mouthpiece. And under the new covenant of grace, God still speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. He may answer us as we read his word, or through a prophetic encouragement, or a sermon, or the wisdom of a godly friend. And through that prophet, God reminds the Israelites of what he's done for them in the past about the time when they were under such great, a great yoke of slavery and fear in Egypt and how he saved them then. And about the time when they were facing these incredibly dangerous tribes and he drove them out so that they could move into the promised land. The logic of it is, of course, this is what God is saying. If I did all of this for you in the past, am I not capable of doing it again? Can I not take care of you in this new tribulation and trouble as I did for your forefathers in the past? Whenever the patriarchs in the Old Testament referred to God, they called him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were saying, he is the God who's faithful to each generation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because when we call on God in our distress, the first thing he wants to say to us is, do you remember what happened the last time you trusted me? 
Do you remember what happened the last time you asked me for help? Remember how I saved you and turned that situation into blessing in your life. Do you remember what I did then? Well, I'm going to be the same faithful God this time. I will give you the strength and the grace to overcome your fears and faith to trust me to do more than you could ask or imagine. So I want to ask that maybe sometime this week we can begin to reflect on the things that God has done in our lives. I think our faith in God's goodness will begin to swell and your courage would grow when you start to remember. If he did that before, will he not do it again? Because he is true to who he is. He is a faithful God. Now, the second thing that God said through this prophet is in verse 10. He said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. One of the repeated themes of the Old Testament is God calling a wayward people back to be faithful to him. And though God had given the Israelites a set of codes and laws to live by to keep them distinct from the nations around them, time and time again they would drift away following idols and the customs of the other nations. When God called the Israelites to be a holy people, he meant so that they could be set apart for his purposes and his glory. And the thing is, this is not just true for the days of Gideon and the nation of Israel then. It's also our tendency as God's called out ones, as his church, to easily start assimilating the tendencies and the mindsets of the culture that we live in. As Christians, we can start to live from a place of striving to please God instead of rem remembering that we are to walk by, by faith in step with the Holy Spirit. We can start to take on the mindsets of guilt and judgmentalism instead of living from a place of grace and forgiveness. We can find ourselves tending towards legalism or living licentiously because we've forgotten that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, no longer slaves. I think that when we stop giving God the rightful place that he deserves in our lives, we open the door for fear to come into our lives. God spoke to the Israelites not to condemn them, but to bring them back to their senses. Sometimes we have to stop and we have to think, when our lives are spiraling out of control and they're steeped in a lot of anxiety and fear, it's a little red flag that we are no longer resting in God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ's cross in our lives. And God sends his prophetic voice to, into our lives to call us back to being faithful to him instead of pursuing the ways of the world. And we go on in our story in verse 11 and 12, of course. And uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joas the Abrazite, and where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. 
When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And this is the first time we are introduced to Gideon. We know he came from a place called Ophrah, and that his father was called Joash, and that Gideon was doing something really strange. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. And if you look at the next slide, Chris, the, there's a picture there of an archaeological excavation of an ancient wine press. And you could see it was a sunken area, so it was well done beneath the ground. And Gideon, in this fearful state because of these marauding Midianites, he, was, he took his wheat, which he would have done on the surface on the ground with cattle helping to trample your corn. He was doing this hidden away in, from prying eyes in a, in a wine press. I want to say that when we live under fear, the abnormal starts to be normal. I remember when us, we lived in South Africa, and there were things that we did to safeguard ourselves that we would consider very strange here in the UK. For example, as a woman traveling late at night on my own in my car, I would approach a traffic light that was red and approach it as a yield sign rather than stop for fear of being hijacked at gunpoint. And that's just reality. Um, you treat um, <laughs> a red traffic light as a, a suggestion and a yield rather than doing that. And here you would get, I suppose, <laughs> more than a, fire, a, a very bad t ticket. But when you're living under fear, that is a normal way of driving. I think that when we live under fear for a long time, our lives can start to develop unhealthy behaviors and habits that we think are normal. Perhaps it's maybe regularly drinking to alcohol to help us deal with stress or obsessively managing other people's lives to reassure us we're in control. There are little things that we can start to develop as habits because we're living under persistent fear. And it's really good to identify, like I said, the areas that we are living in that are fearful, but it's equally good to stop and think about how are we dealing with those fears? What are the behaviors that we are using to cope with them? Are we giving those things over to God and finding grace in them, or are we developing unhealthy ways that are no longer good for us? The second thing that we see from this, um, uh, we, when we meet Gideon, is that, in verse 10, is that God has a sense of humor. Here we have Gideon cowering in a wine press full of fear and intrepidation, and the angel says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord was challenging the way fear had pushed Gideon back into a corner. It had changed his behavior, his perspective, and his identity. So the first thing that the angel says to Gideon is, the Lord is with you. And if we look on the next slide, it says this is what Gideon's response is. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? Have you heard that before? Pardon me, my Lord. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us 
into the hand of Midian. Gideon asked the question that we may all ask when we find ourselves beset with pain and struggle. If the Lord was with us, if the Lord is with us, why is this happening to us? All that Gideon felt was as if he had been abandoned by God through the trials he had experienced. And we notice that God doesn't give Gideon a direct answer about, to his question. But when we stand back as an onlooker into the story, into the situation, we can see that God is very much answering Gideon. And the next slide says the things that God says to him. The Lord, is that on the next slide? Yes. Good question. You're doing a great job. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength, you, um, and go, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. We can see that God has been there all the time through this testing process in Israel's history, and he's been mindful of Gideon's personal struggles. Sometimes when we don't see breakthroughs straight away, we can feel God has abandoned us. It's really human nature to feel that hard times equals God's disapproval and indifference. But this isn't true. God will never abandon his children. It would be untrue to his character as a good father. In his wisdom, sometimes God tarries, not because he's indifferent or because he's absent, because he does so for our sakes, because God is forming something much deeper in our lives that cannot come any other way. It's called faith. When we come to the end of ourselves, our only resource is to place our hope in God. Sometimes, as a good father, he allows us to understand what is going on in our own hearts through the struggles that we face. We get to see the fears that are there. We get to see maybe our independence of, of him. We maybe get to see the lukewarmness in our hearts. And so sometimes he stands back so that faith in his faithfulness can grow, not just as an intellectual ascent, but as something very, very precious that he says is as precious as gold, made in the refiner's fire. And then God does the second amazing thing. He affirms Gideon in his struggling, fearful state as a mighty warrior. Right now, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what the fears are that you are dealing with. But God looks at you and he says, mighty warrior. He didn't say that to Gideon after he conquered the Midianites in the battle a couple of chapters on. He said it before he even did it. He said it while he was cowering in fear. He said, you are a mighty warrior. 
When God finds us in a place of fear, he never, ever leaves us there. Even when we argue with him and tell him that really we're the weakest and the least of the least. Don't bother with me, God. I'm terrible. I'm worthless. But God never values us based on what the world says we are. His words over us are, you are mighty warrior. You have much strength in you, and I'm sending you to deal with the cause of your fear because I, the God of the universe, am with you. So do not be afraid. God wants to break off the lies that the devil has sown into your spirit, that God has abandoned you and that you are powerless and weak and foolish. Today, we have a choice to continue to listen to that voice of fear and intimidation, or we can take a stand and say, God is with me, and I will go in, this, in his strength because I am a mighty warrior through the power of Christ in me. We read later that Gideon rose up in courage and he chopped down the Asherah poles for the Baal worship in his, in his town. And he gathered a whole army to defeat the Midianites, which he did. Fear paralyzes us, but faith always moves us to action. What you previously thought was impossible in your situation, God, when he stirs that faith in us, he gives us courage, conviction, and confidence to do something about it. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Once you have heard God speak to you concerning the things you're afraid of, something supernatural takes place. We move from being an intimidated, back-footed, angry person to an assertive, positive, joyful, mighty warrior. And this is what God has for you today. What are the things that he's speaking to you about? He says, arise, mighty warrior. I, the Lord, am with you. You will defeat these Midianites. Have faith in me.